Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I think it's going to be like when we look back in like the history of music, there's going to be like a chapter about like this era of music. Just completely how it changed. Welcome to Trash in the Attic, a podcast about stuff. I'm Charlie Gunn and each week I ask a musician to have a rummage through their attic to find some hidden gems from their past. Be it an old tour poster or a work of art, we hear the stories behind these lost items. This week I chat to Raquel Newell, vocalist and one third of the band Dreamwife. The trio met at Art College in Brighton, forming the group as part of a performance piece. They released their self-titled debut album in 2018 and this year they're back with a new record, So When You Gonna, out in July. I talked to Raquel via Zoom. She's left London to stay with family in Iceland during lockdown. As she isn't at home, she doesn't have a load of stuff with her, but we kind of make it work. So... For the purposes of this podcast, I asked you, which is a difficult task when you're not, you're not in your own home, to have a rummage through the loft and find some hidden gems from your past. Did you manage to find some things, Raquel? Um, I am in a situation where my I'm not in my house and my parents just moved house. So my childhood boxes are, are, are still in boxes in a different house. But I'm at my sister's place, and we did grow up together, where there's about a year between us. So I did sort of look at like stuff that maybe was around me, because you gotta you gotta work with what you have, you know. Absolutely. Um. Um. What What's the first thing that you've um found in your sister's house that you want to talk about? <laughs> um. I found this, which I really love, that she got from our parents' house, and put it in her own, and it's a book about Icelandic wildflowers and herbs and I really love the it's all watercolor paintings sort of drawings and it tells you like where you can find them in like which sections of Iceland wow okay so you're holding up a book it's got really beautiful flowers on the front and inside yeah there's little maps of uh, areas of Iceland so yeah um I've only been to Iceland once, but I noticed that it was, it was just possibly the most stunning country that I've ever visited in terms of just nature. And I think as soon as you get out of the city, out of Reykjavik, it's just, I don't know, I found it mind blowing. But was that something that you did as kids together go out and kind of spot, I don't know, flowers and things or? Um, Actually, (laughs) I grew up in California. Until I was I did 10. not know that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> which is where I have my American twang. Um, right. But Iceland was always this kind of dream place when we were kids. Because um, we would come here for occasional summer holidays. And I have a very loud and wonderful family full of actors and musicians and... And it was quite, it was like this fairy tale place and it snowed there. <laughs> so when we came back, we always, we always saw it as a fairyland. And then when my parents decided that we were, um, you know, becoming a bit too American, or they were afraid that we weren't, that we just didn't want to leave, 
and we wouldn't connect to our Icelandic roots or our family. And then they decided to uproot us, uh, us, me and my three siblings, to Iceland. And it was one of the greatest shocks of my life. Because it was great. How old were you? I was 10. Wow. Um, and I had just, you know, had a very easy, simple suburban life in California, North California. And it was such an in, intense thing coming to a place that's like a fairyland because you just go there for, you know, two weeks every other year. And then living there, and it was just, it was so cold <laughs> compared to California and like not having like, you know, your legs bare all year round or, and if you try to swim in the sea, it was, it was a very cold sea. So I think I was in the beginning, I was pretty upset that my parents uprooted us to this place. But then when I got a bit older, then I, again, got very excited about how beautiful it is here and especially the wildness of Iceland like there's a lot of I mean I think it's it's probably like 80% of the country that is in the middle that is just wild land um, and glaciers and volcanoes and that's such a like all the towns are only on this side like on the seaside areas in the middle of the island there's just wildness <laughs> And I think the more older you get, the more you appreciate your country. And also when you see it through other people's eyes, like when you see it through your friend's eyes that from, come from London or, um, or even through films, you're like, wow, that's a great... God, oh, that's Iceland. <laughs> wow, that's so interesting. I remember seeing lots of um, really stunning, like, purple flowers. Oh, maybe... So June you, time, but yeah. I can't. I don't know. You, you were know in. You were in the summertime. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was summertime, which is crazy because it. I mean, telling you things you know, but uh, it just didn't get dark at all. So, yeah, it's kind of a shock coming from London. It. I think that's a healthy shock. Some people find it really disturbing. No, I was into it. Yeah, it was good for sure. But then I don't know how I would handle the opposite, where it it just it doesn't really get light I think that must be quite tough yeah in January and December it's about five and a half hours I think is the minimum for light so it comes up about like at 10 and then and then it goes back around 3 30 so that is that is difficult especially for a kid coming from California yeah so when you were like in your early teens what what did you do for fun? Were you making a lot of music at that time? Or did you have bands with friends there? Or what, what did you get up to? Um, yeah, I guess I had a few cute bands that played like one or two shows. <laughs> Some kind of like battle the bands kind of situations. And I was actually quite in an, I joke around calling it my toddlers and tiaras moment. But I really loved competing in singing competitions. Brilliant. That was like my thing, <laughs> and it was a big it was a big deal uh, in Iceland, like I guess because you know the time of you know the Voice and American Idol right. and that kind of stuff at that kind of level, like on TV or I mean it was actually on TV, but it was for you know those age groups. So sure. once you got to a certain point, then 
yeah, it was it was ridiculous. I got really competitive, but then I didn't have any kind of future view from it. I just wanted to win, and then I won. <laughs> yeah. Nothing happened. So it was sort of it was fun, but were you singing original stuff or covers? Both, actually. I had a I had a plan a plan to win. I often did like songs from the forties, and then I had family members who would help me. So I was very well coached. My grandma gave me one of the best advices I've ever had. And I sometimes tell people who ask me uh, why I stare so much into the audience when I perform, why I'm not looking down or looking somewhere else, which I find funny. Like, it's weird. People are like, the singer of Dream Life had a stare deeply into the audience with a, like, I don't know, with, <laughs> it's just funny when we're like, why do you always stare at their audience? I'm like, w- <laughs> where else am I going to look? Yeah. But my grandma, when I was, uh, before, like, rehearsing for one of these competitions, it was a thing, it was a big thing in Iceland, um, I was prepping a song and I was singing each, you know, I wanted her to criticize me on my vocals. She's an actress and a director, my grandma. And uh, I started singing the song, and she stopped me halfway through. She was like, I can't see anything. I'm like, what do, you, what do you mean? You can't see anything. She's like, yeah, when you're singing, you're not singing with your eyes. You're not telling a story. And I, ref- I sort of was quite upset because... I want her to critique me on my vocals. And I was like, well, that's not the point of this. I'm trying to show you what I'm singing and if it's like the right tone. And, and she replied and she was like, it doesn't really matter if it's the right tone. It matters if you perform the song so that the audience understands the song and can take meaning from it. So in general, she was like, if we don't, like if you don't see it, we won't see it. So she made me perform the song again and again and again until I saw it. And then she made me stop. So I quite like that lesson of like, music is not only the notes that you're hitting. Music is you envisioning what it is you're singing, what your message is, what the feelings of the song is. And that's definitely what I learned from my grandma. I found this in my bag, walking to my sister's house. It is my diary. <gasps> it is matching my hat. It is. Both <laughs> bright red, very beautiful. <laughs> I feel like this is the color of the year, bright red for me. It's, it's strong. How, how long have you kept a diary for? I've actually only recently started keeping a diary. I used to do it as a kid and I actually found my old diary uh, about two years ago. Uh, rummaging through some old stuff in my parents' house, old house, that I don't have access to right now. (laughs) But I found it, and I think I was 11, um, and it was terrible. I'm so happy that my brain has evolved. It was all like, I walked home from school, and this guy in the other class, I think he's cute, but I also don't think so. It's just like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm just so happy that my brain has evolved. (laughs) That's what I like saying when you're reading uh, 
when you're I'm not reading diaries. I've had I've kept this diary for about like a year and I've really enjoyed it, like coming off tour. Um and just sort of it's such a good way of cleaning your thoughts. It's almost like cleaning your clothes. Do you know what I mean? Do you keep a diary? I used to when I was young, but I haven't. But so, um, so many people have told me, you know, for your mental health or just, um, that's just a good thing to do. Like you say, clearing your head at the end of the day, it's a really good practice. But no, I don't do it. Um, but do you, are you quite regimented with it? Do you do it every night before bed or is it just when you find the time? I usually do it in the mornings, uh, sort of to clear my head in that way to sort of get ready for a new day. Uh, it's been super helpful because I had like had diaries but written sporadically and not had it as a formal diary, more as a kind of a notebook that had words in it. But having actually a date next to what you're writing and having a full page has been really helpful because then you feel like it's something that is a release. And especially when you're writing, because we've been writing this album for the past year I started writing it like in February, March last year and it was such that's around the same time as I started having a diary and it was so helpful because I often feel like songs is also a way of clearing your head like when I like to write um, or <laughs> I think when songs come to me that's the kind of approach that I have is that um, I'm open to songs coming towards me rather than me sitting down and like I'm gonna write a song right now it's always been like when I'm walking or cycling which is why I actually love living in London because I try to walk as much as possible if it's under an hour and I'm not late <laughs> then I try to walk and during those walks that's actually when I get a lot of ideas and I'm very thankful for having voice memos on my phone and then when I get to the destination or when I want to look back at it later then I can like link two ideas together and then present it to the band and put some proper music underneath it but yeah I really like that kind of way of like walking and diary is a way of like clearing your thoughts I feel what do you feel clearing thoughts yeah it's a good question I think I could be better at it for sure um a lot of having mad thoughts in the middle of the night which I could do without happening so maybe if I tried to write them down uh then it, yeah it would would stop that from happening but but yeah I always liked I think in my teenage years you know when everything is so angst-ridden and and everything is a uh, the worst thing that's ever happened to you it definitely helped then but um all of my diaries from that time are in a box somewhere. Mm. And my parents have moved a lot since then. And I just know my mum's found them and read them all, which is just so mortifying to me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm glad that I haven't I haven't delved back into them because I think I would, yeah, like you say, it would well, you'd be glad that you're you were not in that place <laughs> anymore. Apparently you're not really supposed to reread your diaries. Except really? if you're going to, except if you're going to like write a book. <laughs> right. I've heard that before. It's like, you don't really need to reread your diaries, like, unless it's for like a certain task. A memoir. Because it's more yeah. about, more about the release. 
like to be to be able to almost like to put your thoughts in one place or to say something out loud i think it's so often when when your your thoughts get magnified in your own head and they just start circling and it's sort of like one of those you know pin machines like the ball is just always like going round unless you actually you know say something out loud or write it down like so often like when you're angry or when you're frustrated or or you don't feel like there's a solution being presented like i always think it's so helpful to write them down and then i just put them out and then i can sort of move on um so i would ask you to read some of your diary but i'm i imagine you you probably don't want to do that <laughs> actually <laughs> i read through my diary okay great actually one thing i did read a bit back from this diary recently i know you're not supposed to do that but i still did it because i want to because it's pretty interesting times we're living in <laughs> yeah um like the end of um <laughs> like at the end of february i think i wrote down that i had partied way too much for this month i had gone to way too many gigs Oh, what a lovely thought. I was like, I've been to four gigs each week. I've seen so many friends of mine and I've partied so much. I should really calm down in March and get my head a bit straight. (laughs) And then the beginning of March is like, this is going to be my quiet month. If I only knew. (laughs) I was almost like, did I call this upon myself? But yeah, literally in my diary, I'm writing like, I'm a little bit social exhausted because I've gone to four gigs each week. <laughs> and now I'm like, you didn't know how good it was, honey. <laughs> you didn't realize that you would go to no gigs in the coming months. So I'm very happy that I was able yeah. to. At least you got them in while you could. Um, do you remember what the last show was you saw? The last show I saw was Ninth Wave and Walt Disco. At the Lexington for Animax oh, Presents. That is the best thing about London. Like, that's why I've loved living there is because of the gig culture. Like, as, like, my diary says, I've, I went to four gigs a week. And, and not planning it. It's like, oh, yeah, my friend's playing. Oh, which one comes this tonight? Yeah, sure. But this kind of, like, the ease of it all. Do you, th- do you think, though, that having a pause from it, because I think when you are so immersed in the music scene in London, you, d- you can find yourself going out like, you know, five, six times a week and it, and it can weigh on you a little bit. Do you think this pause, you know, not, not because it will be enforced on us, might make you approach things a bit differently in the future? I'm thinking a lot of people will have taken this time to really zen out and and sort of appreciate a kind of slower pace of life and maybe some people will try and and they stick to that a little bit more after all this is hopefully over. I think one thing though is which I hope is that people really like myself appreciate a gig and how much work is put into it like not just from the band itself but 
the promoters, the organizers, the venue, the bar staff, you know, the the radio pluggers, the label, like everything that goes behind, you know, and obviously like the touring crew and the booking agents. There's just like, there's so many people that are connected to that one show. And it's like, it's a lot of, yeah, it's the same industry and there's a lot of hands in that, putting that one night together. So I feel hopefully that people are very grateful for our gig maybe understanding the costs of it and the work put behind it that would be great yeah of, of the kind of understanding that it is an industry rather than hey do you want to rock up and play at my bar for a fiver or something yeah <laughs> for sure and I think you know just for fans of music I think they'll just well they'll have a taste of what it's like when it's taken away and i think mm. it will just make everybody get out there a little bit more when when uh they can and and support and see live music i hope anyway and appreciate um, that's what i hope too like not just be like talking with a beer at a gig being like oh my god i'm at a gig this is amazing i get to listen to live music that's incredible you know I hope that it goes up for the overall spectrum that people would be thankful to be at a gig rather than taking it for granted. So I think you have one more thing, Raquel, that you've managed to dig up. Um, and it is, I'm looking at it now, a guitar. What can you tell me about this guitar? Um, this guitar was... It's a Martin. It's like a mini Martin, so it's tiny, which I find actually way more comfortable. I'm not really a big fan of the big, uh, big heavy guitars. Also, like when you have boobs, it's just very uncomfortable. Yeah, didn't St. Vincent make a line of guitars that were sort of? Yeah, they're brilliant. Yeah, they look really cool. As well. I've, I've tried one really in the them. store, and it just actually was great because, <laughs> like, a lot of, like, a lot of like the big classical guitars, they're just really uncomfortable to play if you have boobs. But this, um, this Martin one is really nice because it's small and and cute, and the sound is just beautiful. And uh, it's from Pittsburgh. Me and my sisters. We did a performance piece of our uncle's. His name is Ragnar Kertansson. He's a visual performance artist. And this is like eight years ago. Time flies when you're having fun. But it was a performance piece for about a month where me and my sisters were singing in a bed. Like like a satin draped bed and we were all wearing these like satin Greek goddess kind of styled robes uh, with this wow. guitar uh, and we were performing the same song which is about a minute long for six hours a day for a oh month my goodness in Carnegie Carnegie Museum that was fun uh, it was about this what kind was of... the song was it an Icelandic song no, it was 
he likes endurance pieces. He sort of has made his career a lot based on endurance pieces and almost like the physical pain from it as well and motion. But it was a it was a poem after Allen Ginsberg and it was how he remembered it. But he was remembering the, the poem and sort of just remembering the lines that he remembered for the poem. And it's about, I think it's called The Weight of the World is Love. And he just took the lines of what he remembered from the poem and made a one minute song. And then he got his nieces to, to sing it again and again for a month. It was quite fun. It was like a living art piece. Like people would come. There's this epic hall in Carnegie Museum where there was like Greek statues all over us. And it was the only piece in the room, this massive hall. And people would just come there and like, you know, look at the art, which was us, us sisters. <laughs> um, and even like some classic kind of, you know, Southern Americans would come and be like, what y'all doing? <laughs> What's the name of the song? And like, <laughs> you're like, we're a piece of art. We can't, we can't respond to you. <laughs> um, what a crazy experience. Is there any footage of it anywhere? There is. I can send it to you. It was. Yeah, I would love to see it. It was, it was quite fun. There's him and my grandma. He likes to use his family in pieces and his friends. So the people that are close to him, he did this, he had a solo show at the Barbican like four years ago, three years ago, his name is Ragnar Kaftansson, and apparently it was the most visited solo exhibition that year. Wow. So that was pretty cool. It was nice that he's become a household name. Yeah, for in sure. The, in the, who, who had the task of playing the guitar for six hours? Um, we, we took turns, <laughs> we took turns. It's got to be tough on the old fingers otherwise. Yeah, we took, and sometimes you had to sort of calm your voice so you didn't sing for a little bit. And then it, also sometimes the notes would change and suddenly you've gotten really, <laughs> really low and everyone's like trying to get back to the note. It was, it was a great endurance piece um, and I loved it. The record is out Ju July 2nd, is that right? I think it's the 3rd. July 3rd, there we go. But um, I wanted to talk a bit about that because it's really cool that you guys have got a all-female team on the record, right? Of producers and how did that come about? Well, we chose the producer, Martha Solangi, who is such an incredibly talented music maker she she's basically an engineer mixer and a producer she's like the holy trinity and she's so skilled in every single area and she's so easygoing and funny and just knows when you got the right take which was very important for us to sort of have like to feel like you were coming to a wonderful workplace and we had a full month, which was great. A full month in a studio in London Fields. It was, it was such a wonderful experience, and 
I feel like you can really tell when you listen to the masters, you're like, we had a great time. Like this was like a great way of going both finding joy and finding sorrow and allowing allowing there to be trust in the space so you can actually show any emotion that you decide you wanted to show that day of recording. And then we had so she assembled a team and we had an amazing engineer called Grace and she was just really you know everyone was just so on it and it was so easy going. And then we got Heba Kedri to master in. She's also just a legend. And everything was so easy. Like we almost said yes to the first mixes. That never happens. Like Masa sent over the first mixes and we we're like, oh my gosh, I only have like a few notes. Which is so rare. But we had such gr- such like good conversations in the studio itself. And we started each day by sort of listening to you know, different sounds and influences as well that we were thinking about, like for the guitar or for the drums or for the vocals of how they went should be recorded. So it was like so nice to do so much of that already in the studio, like not only yeah. afterwards. And when we got the mixes, we were just, yeah, we almost said yes to the first ones because we were like, how did you read our minds and make it way better? We were so fortunate to work with Matba and that team. Yeah, I mean, for sure it's something you know, I try not to generalise too much, but I find um, sort of decision-making and and the creative process surrounded by women very different to um, to when I'm working with men. I, 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 yeah, like I, it may be specific to the men I've worked with, but ego just tends to dominate, I find. And it's, I, I don't, always like to be the person who has to shout the loudest in the room to be heard so I find that quite sort of challenging in a way like when you have those kind of big male dominating characters it's just so I find it can be really exhausting so I think I know what you mean yeah I think that the e- it was just so easy <laughs> but we there was a male in the room there was Paves, our drummer, and he's the most easygoing person you could ever, <laughs> ever meet. Absolute angel. If there is a gender balance in the room, it completely changes everything. Yeah. Like, if there's a room full of men behind, behind especially in the studio settings, it's just something that doesn't always work then. Because then... If, if there's an imbalance going on there, it just it's so clear who's dominating often, I feel. But again, it's often due to the people you're working with and their personalities. But just it's just so nice when there's more women around in these creative spaces and it really need to it needs to be an issue raised. Like the stories that Martha told us were in they were just terrible. And I had no idea about it. Like, for example, did you know that last year only 3% of albums being made in a commercial sense in the Western world were made by women? Yeah, that's just... 3%. It's nonsense. And that's it's just nonsense. having a woman producer. <laughs> Apparently it's even, like, lower having it, like having a, another woman on board as a mixer or assistant. So just knowing that this is a profession that is so in- incredibly male-dominant, or I mean, women X, like non-binary or anyone, like three percent. 
yeah. of, of the non, you know, male. <laughs> it's weird, really, because I don't, you know, if that was a different industry, I feel like it would maybe be being addressed more seriously. But, um, you know, it just needs talking about more, which you guys are really good at doing. And um, Martha thought there was one thing that was pretty intense, too, because she, she'd been working um, as an assistant and mixing for a few producers and a few, like, Hot shots, um, you know, pr- producers that have been in the game for a while. And she heard stories through them. Like one of the stories was in the 90s up to the early 2000s. Record labels and studios themselves had like a policy that they didn't want to have women working in the studio. And this is like early 2000s, 90s. That most studios in London had like a non-spoken about policy and the reason was so that they wouldn't distract the musicians. I mean, it's just gross. It doesn't bear thinking about. And I, I like. I'd like to think, you know, things have moved on so much since then. But I... like, I'm I sorry, think... my mixing skills are distracting you, male musician. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, you're so easily distracted from what you're doing. It's just crazy that that's just like so recent. But that was like almost a policy throughout a majority of the music studios around London like and if you wanted to you know be an intern or you know work as any format of engineering or because it's obviously you have to like work your way up in this industry as well you couldn't do that because you were a distracting female (laughs) that's crazy well thank you Raquel yeah of course Um, that was a really good chat and everybody should go and Check out the new songs, which are on Spotify. So, Sports and... Hasta la Vista. Hasta la Vista. I was going to say Hasta Mañana. Hasta la Vista. <laughs> Both really great tracks. And and the new record, which is out on July 3rd. Yay. But thanks for chatting to me. Yeah, thanks for and chatting. And I hope you get back to London at some point soon. Likewise. Um, yeah, right. But I'll, I'll see you in a pub. <laughs> Thank you all for listening and thanks Raquel for the chat. So When You Gonna is out July 3rd, so check that out. The band have also made a podcast series of the same name, where they chat to loads of interesting and amazing women working in the music industry. Production support for this episode was by James John Deacon and that catchy little jingle that you keep hearing is by Izzy B. Phillips. Don't forget to like, follow, rate, subscribe and all that stuff if you enjoyed it. It really helps us out.